take a copy of God's Word with me this morning, and you'll notice that we're taking a one-week break from our regular series in 1 Corinthians to consider 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, where the Apostle Peter writes about how we as Christians ought to think about and relate to governing authorities. And that, of course, makes 1 Peter chapter 2 immediately relevant and full of significance for our lives. To get us started here, I want you to just think about some of the questions that probably come to many of our minds as we think about this issue. How should we as Christians think about governing authorities? Where does the authority of the civil magistrate come from? Does it come first and foremost from the people or more fundamentally from God? And what difference does that make? What's the purpose? What's the role of civil government? What is our responsibility to the civil authority as citizens? What should our attitude be towards our civil leaders? Why should we obey civil authorities? What's the extent of their authority? And when should we obey? And when, if ever, should we engage in civil disobedience? How should we live when a government is unjust? These are all, I think we'd agree, crucial questions, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, goes a long way in helping us to answer these questions from Scripture. So I think it's important for us to think through uh, this issue, these questions, for, for at, least an, at least three reasons that come to my mind. First of all, I think, I think we'd all agree, regardless of our political convictions, we can all agree that the political landscape has become particularly heated in our day, hasn't it? When you turn on Fox News or CNN to listen to some political commentary and the standard for discussion and debate has, I think, reached an all-time low. It gets rather nasty, even vicious at times, and The very mention of politics puts people on edge today. And discussions about politics often evoke powerful emotions that often shape our thinking and our speaking. But I think we'd all agree as Christians, we don't want to be driven by emotive thinking. We want to be thinking theologically. Another reason these are important questions is because we need to know how to think and how to live in a society where the moral values embraced across the ideological spectrum by many of our civil officials runs far below, if not directly contrary, to the faith that we confess and to the 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 morals that we would hold to as confessing Christians. And I think it's also right to say it's becoming increasingly difficult, even if not impossible in some places, to be in public office in the United States without supporting 
and promoting a social agenda that stands directly contrary to what today is often being called a traditional Christian ethic. Uh, This is seen most clearly, isn't it, today, right now with the issues of gender and sexuality. Finally, one more reason I think this will be a helpful study for us here in 1 Peter 2 is that while we live in a society with varying and conflicting political ideologies, God's word teaches us some fundamental principles for how we ought to think and that ought to also shape how we live as citizens in this particular uh, country. And so I think understanding these principles will promote unity among the fellowship of believers, even as we wrestle with very difficult questions today. Okay, so again, it's important for us to think theologically, not emotionally. It's important for us to think and live faithfully in a culture opposed to the Christianity and the gospel. And it's important for us to be united on the teaching of scripture. And I think 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17 can really help us in these ways. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Let's hear what the Lord is saying to the church. Beginning in 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Well, to orient us to the teaching of the Apostle Peter in these verses, I want to consider this text under three headings. Three headings to help us make sense of what Peter is saying here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First of all, Peter gives us an attitude to adopt, a way of thinking about civil authority, its character and its purpose, attitude to adopt. Secondly, Peter gives us an approach to maintain, a a way of relating to the civil authority that God has appointed. So uh, an attitude to adopt, an approach to maintain, and then thirdly, an agenda to pursue. A goal we're aiming at as we think and live in these ways. Okay, so an attitude to adopt, an approach to maintain, and an agenda to pursue. So let's start with the first thing here, an attitude to adopt, a way of thinking about civil government. Take a look at the last part of verse 13 to get us started here. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject to every human institution or every human authority. Peter is saying here that civil government is a human institution. I think by that, at the very least, it means that 
Governments are established by peoples and societies as wisdom and prudence and circumstances dictate. And so apart from ancient Israel in the Old Testament era, which received its constitution by direct inspiration of God in Scripture, a constitution now rendered obsolete by the work of Christ, apart from ancient Israel, there is no thus saith the Lord about how any particular nation should be formed or organized. There's no biblical political system that we can point to as universally binding on all people everywhere. Government is a human institution to be arranged as wisdom dictates given the circumstances. And whatever the form, Peter is calling Christians here to subject themselves. Now we might also say that because government is a human institution that we know that in this world in which we find ourselves, that no government is going to be perfect because of what we know about sin, what we know about sin and its effects on individuals and its effects on societies and its effects upon systems of government. Every political system in the world has its failures and its flaws. That was certainly the case for Peter's audience, which we'll get into more in just a little bit, and it's certainly the case for our own. But notice what Peter goes on to say. Um, Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, as he's developing this idea, subject yourselves. Whether it be to the emperor or as governors sent by the emperor. Right? He's highlighting here the, the scope of our responsibility to be subject. You don't get to pick and choose which civil authorities you will honor and obey. From the emperor all the way down to the local governor. From the highest authority to the most local. Be subject to these authorities for the Lord's sake, Peter is saying. But then Peter also summarizes the the purpose of civil government with the words to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. Now we we find that that short formula in Scripture a couple of times as the Bible's summary statement of the purpose of civil government. Civil government is established in this world to punish or to restrain evil and to praise or secure the good, particularly the common good. But remember Peter's context. I mentioned this recently in a, in a letter that was sent out to everyone. He's, he's likely writing in the midst of the reign of Emperor Nero. And at this point, Christians are, are facing social exclusion, uh, slander, even verbal assaults for their faith in Jesus. And and as the reign of Emperor Nero will go on, things will just go from bad to worse until there's widespread persecution throughout the entire Roman Empire. And yet Peter is saying here that in some real sense, even Nero, even governors sent by Nero, wicked though they may be, Even they serve in some way to punish evil and to praise good. 
which tells us, I think, at the very least, that we should be thankful. We should be thankful for our elected officials, even the ones we don't agree with, because we understand as Christians that they have been ordained by God for our good. You should be grateful as a Christian for our federal, state, and local officials our, our, and our, our local law enforcement. God has given them to us for our good. I mean, you can see that even on display in our own country right now, can't you? When in some cities around the country there have been certain protests that have been, uh, well, let's just say, revolutionary in their intent. And when there has been a kind of breakdown in terms of the rule of law, what has happened? All, all sorts of chaos has broken out. But when mayors and city officials and governing officials do what they are called to do, and when law enforcement officers are doing what they ought to do in a proper way, what happens? Well, peace is maintained. The safety of citizens is protected. So we ought to be thankful. And so first of all, Peter tells us there's an attitude to adopt, a way of thinking about civil authority. And then secondly, an approach to maintain, uh, a stance, a way of living and behaving in relation to our civil authorities. And I think he spells it out in very clear terms if you go back to the beginning of verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, sometimes scripture is difficult to understand, but this is a pretty clear statement, isn't it? It doesn't require a lot of unpacking. Be subject to every human institution. Instead of rebelling against legitimate authority, or instead of being, needing to be compelled to submit to rightful authority, Peter is calling Christians to voluntarily subject themselves to the governing authorities. In other words, he's saying, be a good citizen. Insofar as earthly laws do not require you to break the law of God, keep the law. Be a good law-abiding citizen. Respect the rule of law. Don't live as though you are a law unto yourself. But Peter adds this important note, doesn't he? Peter says, for the Lord's sake, be subject for the Lord's sake. Here's what he means, I think. Willfully subject yourself, submit yourself to the governing authority as an act of obedience to the Lord. In other words, submitting to the civil magistrate is part of Christian discipleship. And a failure to submit to the civil magistrate is a failure of Christian discipleship. Furthermore, we could add from other parts of Scripture, voluntarily submit yourself because governing leaders do not receive their authority first and foremost from the people, but from God. The Bible doesn't know anything of a social contract theory where people, to, people agree to invest authority in certain 
civil offices, but if those people who are fulfilling that office are failing to do their quote-unquote job, that then the people withdraw that authority and say we have no obligation to, to listen to anything you say. That's not how the Bible explains government authority. Paul is explicit about this when he writes in Romans 13 verse 1. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So then you ask the question, okay, why, Paul? Why are we as Christians to be subject to the governing authorities? Paul goes on to say, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so submitting to the governing authority in our own land is submitting to what God in his providence has appointed. Whether it be what God has appointed as a means of grace or as a means of judgment. But Paul goes on to say, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And so so Peter and Paul connect submitting to the governing authorities with submission to God. And resisting the governing authorities with resisting what God in his providence has appointed. But of course, then this raises the question for all of us, doesn't it? The important question, what about when a government is unjust? How are we to respond then? Does this approach still apply when government, we believe, is profoundly mismanaging things? Does it apply when the authorities are telling us to do something we do do not want to do? Or when it tells us to do something we think it has no business telling us to do? I think 1 Peter chapter 2 can help us answer, begin to answer that question. In the very next section of 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter is actually dealing with relations of authority, in verse 18, Peter speaks to servants. Take a look at what he says. He says, Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So Peter doesn't say, be subject to your master with all respect when he is good and gentle. He says, be subject even to an unjust Master. In other words, it's not within our rights to conclude because this authority is flawed, because it's unjust, I don't have to obey. My friends, the reality is in this fallen world, all authority is going to be unjust at times. And if you're a parent, you know that to be profoundly true. Because you know how often you've misused your authority. You know how at times you've lorded your authority over your child. Or you've used your authority for your own benefit. For your own convenience. You see, here's what we do. Because in our sinful hearts, we don't like being under authority. We don't like being told what to do. We do want to to be autonomous, self-governing. And so we look for flaws. We, We point to injustices to say... This isn't right. And so I don't have to obey. I'm off the hook. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. In fact, it's just the opposite. It tells us obey even 
unjust leaders. Now, of course, there are important qualifications to make here. In civil governments, whatever the form of that government, those who hold civil office have a responsibility, don't they, to check the authority of other office bearers to ensure that civil authority is not being misused or abused. Calvin called that the doctrine of interposition or the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. And of course, as citizens of our own particular country, we are afforded certain rights. For example, the freedom of speech. We are afforded the the freedom to speak out against wicked leaders. So with those qualifications made, let me take us to the, the most important qualification that needs to be made. And I think we all understand this, that in our obedience to human authorities, we are never to be disobedient to God. If our obedience to the governing authorities is ultimately for the Lord's sake, an act of obedience to the Lord, then whenever a human authority expects us to do something that requires us to sin, then we must say no. With respect, in an honorable way, but we must say no. But I think when we reflect upon the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament, the expectation, the hope is that Christians above all people will be people who are willing to bend over backwards to obey the civil magistrate until obedience to God demands otherwise. And so the Bible doesn't call us to an abject uh, abject submission to every whim or decree of civil power. Peter Peter himself is a great example of this, isn't he? Uh, Of engaging in civil disobedience in order to remain obedient to God. Think of uh, Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John are arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus. And they're told you can't do that anymore. And Peter says whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 5, 29, the apostles are arrested again for preaching in the name of Jesus. And and Peter acts as spokesman. And he says those famous words in Acts 5, 29, we must obey God rather than men. So let's be clear about this. When the civil authorities require the people of God, the church, to be silent instead of preaching Christ, We cannot and must not obey. We must disobey man in order to obey God. And yet, even in those moments, if we study those passages, we're led to see that when obedience to God requires disobedience to civil power, even then we are called to express honor to those in authority out of fear of God. But let's keep going here. Look again at at Peter's words because he has some more to say about our attitude. Here's how we should think of ourselves uh, in this world. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, 
but living as servants of God. Friends, there is wonderful, glorious news in those words, isn't there? You have been set free if you are a Christian. Free in the deepest, most profound sense. And you've been set free in a number of ways. You've been set free from the burdens of the civil and ceremonial Old Testament laws. You've been set free from (coughs) um, the tyranny and domination of the devil. You've been set free from the, the dominion of sin. You've been set free from the condemning wrath of God. You've been set free from the commandments of men that are contrary to the word of God. You, you are free if you are in Christ Jesus. He died to pay for the penalty of sin. He set you free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life. And so we say, don't we, that if Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. This, my friends, this is Christian liberty. But Peter says, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. We are free, but that doesn't mean you're free to sin. We are free, but that doesn't mean you're free to think any way that you please. We are free, but that doesn't mean that you can disregard the laws of the land. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up or excuse for evil as the servants of God. That's what, that's what Peter's saying here. He's saying, we'll see this in just a second. He's, he's speaking to a group of believers uh, about whom it's thought, these folks are bad citizens. These folks are bad neighbors. And he's calling these Christians to be better citizens, better neighbors than anybody else. Because Christ has set you free. Cherish your freedom. Cherish the Christ who has set you free and who has secured your freedom and and refuse to abuse it. So again, just like I was saying, in Peter's day, people were suggesting that to follow Jesus, you were, you, you were inevitably anti-Rome. Uh, making you a bad citizen and a bad neighbor. It made you suspect. It made you suspect both politically and culturally. Because in the Roman Empire, you know, politics and religion and economics and culture were all interwoven. And you couldn't necessarily separate them. And then you have these Christians who, who do not engage in the cult of the emperor. They don't worship the emperor like everybody else. They don't go to the temple dining halls and eat where everyone eats and where business goes on day by day. See, in the eyes of people in the Roman Empire, Christians were seen as suspect and bad citizens because they lived differently. They lived separate, set apart. If you think about it, we're seeing some of these same accusations against Christians today, aren't we? If 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 you don't embrace our view of tolerance, we will not tolerate you. Um, if you do not get behind the LBGTQ agenda and promote it, um, we, we will cancel you. 
Right, we, will, we will come against you with social pressure and the force of legal cases until you conform. See, in the eyes of many progressive elites in our society today, to be a Bible-believing Christian makes you a bad neighbor and a bad citizen. What's Peter doing here? He's teaching us to defy those expectations. And so look at the summary he gives us in verse 17 of how we should behave as followers of Christ in this world. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now that's a striking set of statements, isn't it? It begins and ends with honor. Uh, Honor everyone, honor the emperor. Christians, the way we're to treat everybody else and the way that we are to treat the emperor are the same, at least in this sense. We are to honor them, Peter is saying. That's revolutionary in Peter's context. Peter is writing at a time when people worshipped the emperor as, as God. It was part of civic life. It was as familiar as kids pledging allegiance to the American flag or singing a national anthem at a ball game to burn incense to the emperor as God. And Peter says, no, fear God, not the emperor. Worship God alone, but honor the emperor. Honor him in the same way you honor everyone else, because you know that all people everywhere are made in the image of God. Just think about this in our own context for a moment. Honor everyone. Can we add to that even those with whom you disagree? I mean, that's virtually incomprehensible to many people in our society today. And sadly, it seems to be virtually incomprehensible for some Christians today. We live in a time where if you disagree with someone's opinions or lifestyle choices, it is interpreted as an all-out attack upon their person. Uh, You're mean, you're unloving, you're judgmental. Peter calls us to a better way. We're to honor those with whom, even those with whom we differ. Uh, we, We don't give up our convictions. We don't relativize biblical ethics. But neither do we fail to honor those who reject our point of view. Instead, we we speak respectfully of those in authority, even when we don't like their policies or their personalities. We do not parrot the disrespect and the contempt that we hear and see so much of today on the news. We don't mock those with whom we differ on the political landscape, and we do not demonize or belittle. We may differ and show honor at the same time, dear friends. And it's something we have to learn to do. We may differ and show honor at the same time. And Peter anticipates that this way of living is going to expose the Christian community to pushback, to pressure, maybe even suffering and persecution. And so he doesn't simply call them to honor everyone. He calls them to love the brotherhood, to love the fellowship of believers, because I think the reality is, brothers and sisters, if, if we are going to do this in our own cultural moment, 
we are going to need each other. We are going to need the fellowship of believers, the brotherhood. And so infighting and division must have no place here. We need fellow brothers and sisters submitting to God, standing firm for the cause of Christ together in these dark days. We're going to need each other because it's, it's going to be tough. Love the brotherhood, Peter says. And do it all out of fear of God. Do it all out of fear of God. Now, you know, today, if, if this was just a political science lesson, right? If I stood up this morning and closed my Bible shut and said, you know what, today we're going to do something a little different. Um, instead of trying to understand God's word, I, I'm just going to share some personal thoughts about politics with you today. Well, first of all, you'd have every right to stand up and protest right then and there. But let's say you, were, you, you, you heard me out and I just gave you a, a political science lesson. And at the end of it, you said, you know what, Jared, that's all very nice. And, you know, I, I disagree with you. I couldn't really do anything about that as you go on your way. But brothers and sisters, you understand this is not merely some political science lesson. This is us trying to listen to God's word spoken to God's covenant people. And Peter is saying, honor the emperor. Honor your president. Honor your governor. Honor your political leaders of whatever party. Honor those who are set over you in authority. And honor them out of the fear of the Lord, for the Lord's sake, as, as a matter of conscience. And that, that has to carry weight, doesn't it? That has to carry weight for our thinking, for the attitudes within our hearts, for the words that come out of our mouths, and for our actions. And so as we look at this passage, there's an attitude to adopt, a way of thinking about civil authority. And there's an approach to maintain. And then thirdly, there's an agenda to pursue. The question I have in mind here is, why should we think and live in this way? And Peter mentions two things as part of our motivation, our agenda in all of this. And I think we could sum it up in two words doxology and mission. So let's start with the first word, doxology. First of all, we think and live this way for the glory of God. We do so to the praise of God. Notice, notice verse 13. We take this stance for the Lord's sake. We are to do it, verse 15, because this is the will of God. We're to do so, verse 16, as the servants of God. We're to do so, verse 17, out of fear of God. So why should we live this way? Why should you show honor and respect sometimes to dishonorable men and women? Not because of them. You do it for the glory of God, for the honor of God, for the praise of God. You do it to show that because of who Jesus Christ is and because of who you now are in Jesus Christ, there is no fractious, bitter, seditious, complaining spirit in you. Even, even when you must differ and disagree. 
And sometimes we must do so, brothers and sisters, to our own convenience and at our own cost. You're willing to do it, though, in humility, with kindness, showing respect, because you do it for the glory of God. And then secondly, you do it for the sake of mission. And what I mean by that is bearing witness to the gospel. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, we're just jumping into Peter's letter, but if you read through it, you'd see that throughout this letter, Peter has a concern for how the world thinks about the church and what the world thinks about the words and the works of the church. And here he's reminding them that there's an opportunity for for gospel witness. He wants believers in Christ to be better neighbors, better citizens than anybody else. He wants the good works of believers to be so on display in the lives of Christians that those who are saying today, you know, those Christians, they're just a bunch of hateful, backwards bigots. He wants their mouths, the language of the Greek here is, he wants their mouths to be clamped shut by the good deeds of those who are in Christ Jesus. And so according to Peter, obeying the civil authorities and doing good are ways we live to the glory of God and for the adornment of the gospel. This is what it actually means to be a sojourner. Again, if we had time to look at Peter's letter in its larger context, you'll, you'll at least remember that one of the ways that Peter teaches Christians to think about themselves is as sojourners in this world, exiles passing through, waiting to go home. And Peter's reminding us that this is what it means to be a sojourner, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, living in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. It doesn't mean we have no duty to human authority. And it doesn't mean that we back off or back down or separate ourselves entirely from the world. It means bearing witness, bearing witness to a different life and a different world that we receive as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And so may God help us, may God help us in his grace to be good citizens of the kingdom of this world that we find ourselves in. Because we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of civil authority. We thank you that you have ordained it and appointed it for our good in this world for preservation, uh, to punish evil, and to promote what is good. We pray that by your grace, as your word takes root within all of our hearts, that more and more we would be good neighbors and good citizens. And that it would bring glory to you and give us opportunity to give all of the praise to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.